Welcome, everybody, uh, to the uh, Possibility Podcast, and today we have with us Ward Klein. Uh, Ward has uh, a wonderful career, uh, claim to many interesting things he's done, but I must admit one of the things that I always admired was uh, what I think of as the logo for the last company you ran, which was Energizer, the logo that inspires me all the time, the bunny that never quits. That's right. So it's, uh, hopefully you yourself have been able to use that logo in, in your career in many ways, but I'd like to talk a little bit about your career. Okay. And so why don't we start with kind of, uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Grew up in the Midwest, Des Moines, Iowa. Went to college at St. Olaf College up in Minnesota, Liberal Arts College. Oh, I'm not familiar with it, is it? uh... It's about 3,000 independent uh, and uh, loose affiliation with Lutheran Church, ELCA. But I went and uh, was planning to go for two years to a liberal arts school and then transfer to a business school because I always knew I wanted business. But I enjoyed St. Olaf so much, I stayed for the full four years and got an economics major, but a liberal arts degree. Mm -hmm. And back then, you could go straight into grad school. And so I went straight from St. Olaf to Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern for a two-year master's in management degree. And then straight out of Northwestern, came down to St. Louis and started my career as a Marketing assistant on Meow Mix cat food for Ralston Purina Company. Wow, Meow Mix. Meow we mix. all remember those commercials. Yes. I don't yeah. know. They might still be on. I'm not positive about that. Yeah, they bring them back occasionally. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that was in, and I was in brand management, which was uh, as I was thinking about business and what I wanted to do, do I want accounting or finance or organizational development or whatever. The, the enticement to me with brand management was really being a general manager early in your career. You were managing a brand. In this case, it was a Meow Mix of $70 million in revenue. Wow, that was a And big... even though I was a marketing assistant and there was a product manager who was basically CEO of that little brand, the two of us basically were doing a whole range of general management decisions on the brand from the get-go. Perfect training for what I wanted, which was general management. And so I worked my way up through the brand management system of Ralston Perina, and uh, this is back and started in 1979. So you then, were working closely with kind of CEO lead type people. You would. You would report, you know, early on in your career as a marketing assistant, then an assistant product manager, you, your exposure was to product managers and directors of marketing and the VP of the department. As you became a product manager uh, and managing that little business, you'd start getting exposure actually to the CEO of Ralston Perina Company at annual budget reviews and that sort of thing, which was great learning early on. Right. Intimidating, but great learning. Of course. If it's um, not intimidating, it probably doesn't count. Yeah, if it's not intimidating, you're probably not learning. All right. So in 1986... Ralston Prina acquired the Everetti Battery Company from Union Carbide. I was asked to come over to the new acquisition in marketing, and I, I, I did. I, I transferred over as a director of new products uh, for Everetti. Spent one year commuting to Danbury, Connecticut from St. Louis while we had a, a, one, a less than one-year-old baby in the house. Oh, goodness. So my wife was a real trooper to handle that because I was literally kind of take off Sunday night or Monday morning and come back Fridays. But we knew that was a temporary event because we were moving Everetti to St. Louis, to Ralston Perina. And we did. And so after that year, uh, we moved the operation to St. Louis. And I continued was working in marketing, director of new products. And then I moved over as director of marketing for the main brand, Energizer, 
1989, as the director of marketing, that was when we introduced the Energizer Bunny advertising campaign. In 89? In 89, during wow. the baseball playoffs of the really? fall of 89. Wow, so that's a long-lived uh, kind of memory of it's, the, the It's bunny. still going. Yes. It's still going. It's and, still and, going. <laughs> and my license plate on my car parked outside here says, keep going on it. <laughs> And, and what uh, a theme for a career too. Keep well, going. Well, you know, there is certain there is an aspect to it that I found appealing. And uh, anyway, so I uh, worked, and then uh, at Everetti, and we introduced the bunny. And then I was asked to uh, kind of go out of marketing and do some different things, different challenges that the company was facing. I created the trade marketing department, which was a new discipline back then. Uh, which was kind of a hybrid of marketing and sales, helping the sales force manage customers in a more professional and financial manner, and created the systems and the department and the methods and the processes to do that. Uh, came back as VP of marketing briefly, and then I was asked to become our area chairman for Latin America. I ran our Latin American operations for a couple of years, uh, and then was asked to become the area chairman for Asia, Africa, Middle East, this is a territory that extended from Morocco to New Zealand and South Africa to Korea, Japan. Wow, what and an required, opportunity. And required moving the family. And at oh, this point did. in time, two kids, ages 10 and 13, dog and a cat and wife. And, uh, and uh, so that was kind of a big lift to really decide whether to do that. It's obviously disruptive. Where did you move to? Hong Kong. Oh, okay. And so moving from Clayton, Missouri to Hong Kong with... Uh, and uh, the first six months was tough on everybody, but through toughness, you learn to uh, grow a lot. And in looking back, it was probably the best couple of years our family ever had in terms of coming together, growth, personal growth, watching the kids grow as international citizens rather than just kids from the Midwest. And uh, so we were in Hong Kong from 97 through 2000 and then came back uh, to Energizer and came back to a company now that had spun itself off from Ralston Perina to shareholders. So Energizer at this point in 2000 was an independent, publicly listed company on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. And I came back and continued to oversee various international operations, uh, became a chief operating officer in 2004, and, was, uh, and became the CEO in 2005. Wow, that's and, and kept that role for 10-plus years? Uh, up until July of 2015, which is when, we, when I split Energizer at that point into two companies because mm -hmm. we had grown over those 10 years, but not in the battery business. The battery business delivered great cash flow, stable business, but not a growing business because mm -hmm. batteries as an overall category was starting to decline. Um, and so we were grow We were taking the cash flow and acquiring personal care brands like Schick, Wilkinson, Sword, Razor Products, Edge, Shave Preps, uh, Banana Boat, Hawaiian Tropics, Sun Care Products, Playtex, Infant Care, and Feminine Care Products, and so forth and so on. And by 2015, the personal care division, of, made up of all those brands, was actually bigger in revenue and profits than the battery business. How interesting to take a business that was kind of, like you said, not growing and realize that for shareholders, if we want to have growth here, we're going to have to diversify. Oh, yeah, and, and, and that relationship for that 10 years worked really well in terms of the cash flows from batteries delivering the growth on the personal care side. By 2015, however, we had this huge personal care portfolio or business that was being valued by the street at a lower multiple than it should have been. 
uh, in the consumer product space, household products like batteries or household cleaning products carry a lower multiple, lower value mm-hmm. in shareholders' eyes than personal care brands. And we had we were mostly a personal care business at this point, but being valued as a household products company. And the only way to unlock that value was to split the companies in two. And the day we announced the split, uh, we added $1 billion of shareholder value. Wow. That stuck all the way through the split and for years afterwards. Very amazing. So very traumatic to take an organization through a split. Uh, But we did that, and we accomplished that. And it was my last act as CEO was to actually split the company in two, which from a succession planning point of view is interesting because I'm not looking just to fill my role as CEO. I did have two CEOs, two CFOs, two treasurers, right. two controllers, two organizations. Opportunities had, and problems all at once. Exactly. But we had great management teams, have great management teams on both divisions, and, and actually that was pretty straightforward. The legal split of a company almost down the middle across 45 countries, that was, that was interesting. So what do you think of your early background gave you the insight to be able to kind of see a little bit of where the future was and, and how to create shareholder value out of, uh, out of Energizer? Well, first of all, a lot of great training from Ralston Purina Management. And Bill Steritz, who at the time and for many years was chairman CEO for Ralston Purina, was a leader in U.S. industry in unlocking shareholder value. Um, he, he came into Ralston Prina at the tail end of what was popular back in the 70s, which was building conglomerates of disparate businesses. Well, that made no sense. And Bill saw that before anybody else. And he took Ralston Prina, which was a conglomerate that had everything from horse chow to mushrooms to jack-in-the-box to hockey teams to ski resorts, and he boiled it back down to a consumer products business called Ralston Prina and added tremendous value. So I had, early in my career, a front row seat in terms of uh, what, what it really means to add shareholder value and how to do it and, and how to be courageous about it. And so it was very successful for Ralston Prina shareholders, which one of the major shareholders was the Danforth family. Of course, the Danforth family being some of the major, most generous contributors to St. Louis region and Washington University of anybody. A lot of that wealth that the Danforths were able to, to donate came from what Bill Stairs did at Ralston Prina. Very interesting. So very kind of not just uh, a, a new and innovative and courageous way to add shareholder value, but in the end doing it for what turned out to be some very good purposes. So, I mean, it was a great uh, uh, learning ground for me so that when I became a CEO, um, we took shareholder value very seriously, not lip service. And there's different ways to create it. And interestingly, one way not to really create it is to focus so much on quarterly earnings. And so early in my CEO realm, we spoke very rarely to the street. We very rarely would go do the investment presentations in New York. Uh, we didn't do an earnings call every quarter. Well, you were uh, a leader in something that's becoming much more of a, a theme among companies today. Well, and it's we had to we actually started to institute some of those uh, more common shareholder management techniques or investment management techniques because today is a different environment with all the activists and activism. And uh, but but I still am more a believer of. Uh, you know, your goal as a CEO is to maximize shareholder value. The question always is, 
which shareholder. It could be the day trader. Mm-hmm. It could be the person that's in your stock for the month or for the quarter or for the year. Or it could be your long-term shareholder. And to me, the answer was always long-term shareholder. Absolutely. So why worry about the stock price? If anything, if the stock tanked because of an earnings report, uh, it was a great opportunity to buy. And we bought uh, probably close to half at Energizer during my reign and before. Uh, almost half the equity we took out of the market at an average price of around, over that entire time, the weighted average price of $42 a share. The day we spun the company off, it was $100 a share. Wow, what a story. So that's a lot yeah. of shareholder accretion on top of what you're doing with the business. Then you turbocharged it with shareholder uh, with share repurchase. And we did share repurchase, again, unlike most companies today, that they will announce, we're going to go buy back 10 million shares this coming year. And the reason a CEO would do that is because maybe they had a bad quarter and they're trying to placate the street, and so they can say, hey, look, street, we're going to go buy all these shares. Well, that may be fine to manage those shareholders for that quarter, but that's a lousy way to go into the market and buy shares for long-term value. Right. You don't want people to know when you're buying shares. Uh, exactly. You know, and so we would have a public authorization, all the legal rules crisscrossed and so forth, um, but we would go buy when the stock tanked or when there was a weakness in the overall market because we just had that confidence right. in our long-term value and uh, knew that this was going to be a creative for the shareholders we cared about, which were the long-term shareholders. Yeah. So how do you translate some of that knowledge into how you would um, advise young people today that are maybe going to start their college careers or even while they're still in high school? Like, mm-hmm. What is it they can learn that's going to prepare them for this possibility of maybe someday running a company the way you did? Is you there know, anything that translates? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot. Um, and some of these would be tenants I would, I would preach. That's a bad word, but as a CEO, I spent a lot of time in training for early, uh, entry management, general management, and so forth. And so some of the things I'd share with them, first of all, is you learn more when you listen than when you talk. So my observing Bill Stewart's and how he ran things, I just learned a lot. And you don't presume you know everything. And you just, you, you really do, um, especially in those early years, uh, listen and learn. Um, at least that helped me. Um, I, I would say another lesson that came out of that uh, early on is um, don't just buy the convention of the day. Really think through what you're trying to do. What is the real objective here, whether it's popular or not? And uh, how, what are the different ways you can achieve that objective? And again, Bill Steers demonstrated that with uh, his, his approach to share repurchase, his approach with the street. Uh, it might have been uncomfortable to do that as a CEO. Uh, you're not necessarily popular with the street or whatever. Right. But in the end, you shouldn't care if you're popular based on how well you, you do that sort of interface. Uh, it's they will they will hold you in esteem if you actually deliver the shareholder value, right? So, so do you think having an economics degree followed up with an MBA was important for you to I would say yes. Take a, take and, and for me the liberal arts, up uh, you know, four years of liberal arts. It was a major in economics, but it was a liberal arts curriculum. Hmm. So and, how does that interplay with why you think it helped you? Uh, in liberal arts, uh, you're discovering who you are as well as what the world is like. Mm. 
Uh, you're not immediately just tunnel focused on a particular vocation, whether it's accounting or whatever. I mean, you learn some of the basic skills for that. But you improve your communication skills through the English and speech courses you take. You improve your analytical skills through the courses on art history and astronomy that you take. You improve your view of the world through the American history or world history courses you take. A lot of the uh, traits that become important to becoming a CEO. Exactly. Uh, I, I, over the course of my career, uh, traveled and worked with management teams in 45 countries. And I was always, uh, and I was comfortable with that. And it wasn't, it was foreign, but it was something I wanted to learn more about. Mm -hmm. And I think all that came from just a general, uh, genuine curiosity that our liberal arts sparks. Very good. So when did you first think about becoming a CEO? You know, what's interesting is that was never my goal. My goal was, was, uh, I, I enjoyed leadership positions. I'd been leaders on swim teams, a leader on water polo team, leader in sports environments. And I felt comfortable in that. I learned skills and mm-hmm. how to handle discomfort and, and work with people there. So I was confident about that. And But in a big organization the size of Ralston Purina Company, uh, which is actually where between Purina and Everett, that was my entire career, my focus was more in managing the area of my responsibility really well. And so whether I became the VP of marketing, having the best kick-ass marketing department in the consumer goods industry, whether it was uh, running Latin America and getting Latin America running better than it had been ever before. So it was always doing the best in the job you were in. Doing the best in the job I was in and, um, you know, let fate and other things sort out where I end up. But a little bit being open to anything that came your way, like the relocation. Exactly, exactly. And... There were times in my career where I would take an assignment that my peers would view as a lateral at best and maybe even a demotion. And, uh, and this, one, this specific example is when I moved off of Miamix, I've been on Miamix early in my career as a product manager, brand director. I worked my way up for like three years at that point. And even though we had done really well on Miamix and I was enjoying that responsibility, I was, I was ready to do some other business, some other challenge. And uh, they needed someone to take over rye crisp snack crackers and Ralston hot cereal in the human foods division, as we call it. <laughs> These were brands that were a fraction of the size of what I had. And you wonder, but they had why ma- would I do this? They had major challenges. And I found it interesting. Very, and I was yeah. going to learn. And I, uh, I, I moved over onto those, onto those brands. And uh, we turned uh, both around uh, in short order. And I was learning a whole different industry, human food versus pet food. It, it, it was a ton of learning, and I went for the learning. Very Maybe important. that's another thing yeah. as a, on a path to CEO. Always go for the learning. I like that. And I did. You know, just continue to kind of build my toolbox of experiences, uh, in this case successes, which... Keeps you in the running for additional, you know, your, your directors and VPs and executive VPs are looking for people who work well in the organization, who get, who, who, and who, and who get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and maybe that goes back to another tenet of working well in an organization because we went through some eras of chaos, dysfunction within, within the company, especially after Ralston acquired Everetti. 
and moved a bunch of Ralston Prina young MBA types into an Everetti culture, which was a union carbide global production management autocrat system. We were a young MBA democrat system of culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, those first four years, from 86 to 90, was major warfare taking place within the company. And we were so getting, what would you do differently if the well, what we, was Well, what was interesting was, first of all, what we actually did, because uh, at that point I'm just a director of marketing, and we found like-minded people on the, from the Everetti culture and us and our culture who actually really just wanted to kick Duracell's butt we were competitive, but we realized it wasn't amongst ourselves. It was this outside mm-hmm. force that was taking market share away from us. So you almost kind of had put your head low on the political stuff taking place between the VPs of marketing and sale and production and stuff and tried to work at your level with getting stuff done. And many of the people who ended up surviving and rising up to uh, uh, run Energizer went through that. In, in, in that approach. Mm-hmm. And so ever since then, I would preach to my organization because a lot of young competitive people wanting to do well and wanting to move up the pyramid and so forth. And uh, I would give examples of, of people who were doing that but leaving destruction in their wake uh, of other departments and, and, and people and so forth. And they did not survive in our culture. I don't care if you're the best performing individual right. in the sales group. If you're causing all these problems elsewhere, you're bringing down the whole boat yeah. and you're out. Yeah, and it's a contagious thing. It, well, and people, you know, uh, are really watching. What does it take to succeed? Yeah. What oh, are you looking point. for in success? And I'd, I'd, so I would preach, say, you know, if you're in production, your enemy's not the finance guy. If you're in finance, the enemy's not the sales guy. If you're in sales, the enemy's not the marketing guy. Your enemy is, in this case at that point in time, was Procter & Gamble, who owned Duracell. And your enemy's Procter, they are 20 times our size, 20 times bigger than us. Have no doubt who your enemy is. Right. It's not the guy in the cubicle beside you. Yeah. And people who understand that are going to do well, and people who don't understand that will be invited off the bus. Very good. And to preach that in 45 countries, <sighs> in different cultures. Yeah, yeah. But everybody's sitting there shaking their head. But then they got to wait and see, is that really what you do or not? Yeah. And so you got to so live. Then you that. have to prove it. But when you prove that, when you live that, mm-hmm. you will find a very high-performing organization. Wow. So you've been you've been a great supporter of women in business. You're on a board of Calaris, run by a woman. Yes. And um, I think you're also on the nominating committee for bringing in new directors. Yeah, the, uh, I'm actually I'm the lead in, lead independent director for Calaris, and my responsibilities there includes governance and nominating. The nominating being the, the function of a board replenishing its own right. ranks with board members. And with Diane Sullivan's leadership, and I really give Diane the credit, I've worked with her that we've ended up with a board of directors. Now, again, keep in mind, this is a brown shoe company now called Calaris. Primary consumers are women. Primary decision makers sure. are women. And at this point in time, a majority of our board of directors are women. But there's Led a lot by of a com- female CEO and chairman. But there's a lot of companies that are also about women and maybe don't have that kind of board Absolutely. yet. We yeah. are actually, unfortunately, even today, the exception. Yeah. Of uh, I think there's very few Fortune 1000 companies that would have a majority women on the board. Right. So having worked with a lot of women, what, do you, what advice would you give? What have you seen women do that is right for their career path or maybe not uh, the best move that women can make? Things that might keep holding them back 
what advice would you have that you've seen for women who rise to the top versus mm-hmm. those who maybe could have but did something, changed their career path, didn't get the right experience? You know, I think it, it, it's hard to pine on this from a male point of view, first of all. But, you know, some of the characteristics that I describe on myself aren't unique to men. And so for women to be good listeners, as, as, as mm-hmm. to be uh, committed to doing the best they can with the area that they manage, to be effective at working with others uh, throughout the organization, uh, to be effective at rallying the troops around what the real issues and goals and objectives are, and to get buy-in on that so you have a high-performing organization. I see, you know, women can do that, and I've seen do that. My first boss back was, when I was the marketing assistant on Miamix, my first boss was a woman. Wow. First boss of my career. So it transcends gender. There's yeah, nothing I, I you think see. it does. Now, I will say that what does get in the way, and this is, is maybe when you get into family formation and you start having kids. Yeah. And many women do it. But oftentimes we know the burden of, of raising those children and running that household disproportionately falls on women. That's tough. I admire the women who, who persevere through that and do great things. I mean, Diane Sullivan being an example at Calaris. Yeah. You know, that didn't hold her back. But, and, and I think with couples, if you're talking about CEO track high performance executives and you have a couple and, and the, with children involved, there's got to be some, some real uh, agreement on how, how to balance that. Exactly. And I know a number of cases where the guy stepped back from mm-hmm. a career path. It's hard for both to pursue those career paths and still do a responsible job with children. I don't say it's impossible, right? but I don't think anybody would disagree. It's tough. It's difficult. And so if you have a spouse that is willing to maybe back off on, on, on whatever career they're pursuing, I think that's a big plus. But to your opening question, what right. holds women back? I think it's just the reality of family formation and how do you manage that. It doesn't yes. have to be, but that's... But you have to plan for it. You, you have to you it. have to plan for it, and, and that is very much you and your spouse, uh, right. your partner, have to plan for that. Yeah, yeah. If you really are intent on, on moving So on. you have a daughter. I do. And if uh, for uh, parents listening to this podcast... What, are, what kind of advice would you have for parents of younger girls and teenage girls as far as how they might direct them in leadership? You know? I, I think first and foremost, anything's possible. You know, don't, to, uh, when you're, if you're, if you're, you teach your, your children, your daughter in or son uh, to do the best they can at whatever they choose to do. And whatever they choose to do is what they choose to do. Don't, don't necessarily self-limit yourself. Don't say no to yourself. Uh, what, whatever it is, just be the best at it. And you, early on when they're in school or in sports or in social situations or whatever, just giving them opportunities to succeed. Mm-hmm. And whenever you find them to succeed, recognize that. And whenever they fail, yeah, some, you know, don't, always, don't focus on the failures. Right. Focus on the successes. Mm-hmm. That's how you build. I think whether, whether with young boys uh, or girls, I think that is important. That's how they get their own self-esteem. They know they can succeed because I just succeeded and I just got recognized for it. And there's a lot of things that go into that. Give your children, give your daughters a broad array of experiences. And, and 
you know, I think sports has been a great equalizer in this generation of kids versus maybe when we were growing up. Right. Right when Title IX or before Title IX came into place, uh, women had much less opportunity to play in team sports. Team sports is such a great environment as a development tool in all the things other than just how to shoot a basket in basketball. It is how to how to operate on a team, how to play a position, to know what a position is, how to take leadership, how to, how be to show leader. leadership. Yeah. Be a leader, be a follower. Yeah. You get all of the, uh, yeah. the and, and, and my bias may be towards sports, but certainly you can do that in band. You can do that in orchestra. You can do that in the theater and so forth. And give those daughters, those push those daughters to pursue those opportunities and reinforce it when they do. Great. Great. Well, a lot of lot of good advice. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you think it would be important for either teenage girls or girls who are getting ready to go to college? One other last, I guess, one last quip, quip I'd, I'd put out there, because, again, I'd use this in general management. It seemed to resonate. And it was especially for people who are new into a management position. So you've stepped in to manage a department for the first time. Mm-hmm. You kind of are moving from that position of I've been an employee or colleague of the company to I need to manage a group of employees or colleagues of the company. And that can be very intimidating. A whole new set of skills start to get called in when you're leading right. teams in companies, right? And and one and one piece of advice I give, and, and I do this at fireside chats with people who are going through a one-week management training program who are managers for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, okay, so when you walk into that conference room to your department and, you, and the door closes and you're there and you got ten faces looking at you, realize one thing. It's not about you. It's about them. Very good. I love that. Well, Ward, I thank you for your time today. Sure. And I admire what you're doing with the Claris Board uh, with recognizing how women on that board can uh, – can make the company. It's a great board. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it. And uh, for your work with what you do for the community, I know you're on many, many non-for-profit boards. I'm surprised you had time for us today, but uh, but thank you. You're welcome. And uh, well, thanks for what you're doing. I think it's important. All right, thanks. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.